Open your Bibles with me to the book of Nehemiah. And our key passage is Nehemiah 8, but I'd actually like you to begin with me in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll read a few verses there and then get to our key text. We finished our sermon series today, Revive Us Again, and it's the last of these that we're taking this time in our survey of Old Testament revivals. And setting the stage here a little bit, what we have is that God's people had been carried off into captivity by God's sovereignty in order to judge them for their sinfulness and running away from Him, but also in His sovereignty to purify them and get them ready for what He had next. And as they had gone off into back captivity, they came back in three different groups. There was one group led under Zerubbabel, and that was uh, you find that in Haggai and Zechariah in the Minor Prophets, where that's reported uh, that, that he preached to them, and that was uh, they came. And then about eighty years later, Ezra led a second group. You find that in the Book of Ezra here, right in front of Nehemiah, and particularly verse chapter seven and ten. And Ezra was a man devoted to God and uniquely used by God, but there needed to be a different sort of leader and a second leader to come in complementary fashion with Ezra to accomplish God's work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and that was Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in 445 B.C., led a third group of exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And if we read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, you see the words of the Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, that in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's a Jewish man, and he is in Babylon, but when somebody comes back, he wants to know what's going on. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, this wall meant protection from uh, marauding peoples. This wall meant their salvation and their sustenance uh, literally in a physical way. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed. Before the Lord God of heaven. Nehemiah had a job as the cup bearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. This wasn't just that he was a waiter, this wasn't this that he was a slave, this was he was a part of the royal court. He was on the cabinet of the king. He was a trusted advisor. So it's not like Nehemiah needed another job or would want to go back somewhere where the walls are broken down and you're in danger. He had a pretty nice life. But God had put something in Nehemiah's heart for his people and for God's glory that he uh, used in a unique way. And if you read in Nehemiah, you see as the story unfolds, Nehemiah leads a group of folks back. uh, uh, Well, first he tells King Artaxerxes what he needs. Artaxerxes grants it and then some, leads a group of folks back, very quickly takes a survey of the walls and gets the folks even against opposition into rebuilding the wall, and it comes together very quickly. But after they get the physical wall built, Nehemiah goes after something that's so much more important. 
And with the help of Ezra, that's our passage of Scripture today. And I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 8 now, Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you would, stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, Nehemiah chapter 8. And we'll read verses, uh, actually, we'll start in the very end of chapter 7, verse 73b it is, the beginning of the paragraph, and go all the way through Nehemiah 8, 18. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns... All the people assembled as one in the square before the water gate. They took Ezra the scribe to bring they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Verse two. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for occasion, built for the occasion. Beside uh, him on his right stood Mattatiah, Shema, uh, lots of names that, wow, we'll just go on to verse 5, right? Like Pastor Sean used to say, hard name. Hard name. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, and you got a bunch of those guys with hard names again, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the understanding to, so that the people could understand what was being read. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Verse 13, on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the word of the Lord of law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild uh, uh, olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, as is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths uh, on their roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and one of the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them for the day, uh, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. 
and their joy was very great. Verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Let's pray. God, our Father, we read this scripture and it takes us way back in history and a lot of things we may not understand. We can understand the words, but we're going, why in the world would they do that? What was important about this? Well, that's why we study and that's why we seek to understand. And that's why you give us your word so that we can learn from it today. So, Father, we pray that this morning, at this time, by your Holy Spirit, you'd continue to speak to us and teach us what you desire to teach us about revival. Not a history lesson from Nehemiah and the exiles returned, but a present lesson for what you'd have us to do and to be in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The revival that happened here when Nehemiah came back with the reconstruction of the wall, the reestablishment of their religious worship, and the commitment of their hearts was a total physical and cultural transformation. They rebuilt a city and revitalized a people. Though revival is a work of God, it cannot happen without people committed to Him. And it cannot happen without the Bible or Scriptures involved. And it cannot happen without change. Revival is always related to a return to Scripture. You need to write that one down. Revival is always related to a return to Scripture. There is no revival without the Bible. Revival is always related to a return to Scripture. We see that in this passage, and we see that throughout Christian history. And Nehemiah 8, beyond that return to Scripture, gives us a pattern for how, as a body of believers, we hear and understand and teach each other Scripture. But we've got to define what is revival. We tried to touch on it each time, but our scripture memory verse of the month defines that for us. And we'll read it all together, and then we'll talk about it just quickly before we move on. So let's say it, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 That verse is a biblical pattern for revival. If we're God's people and we have already been saved, but we've wandered away and gotten to a sinful state of our life, then we need to call on His name. We need to humble ourselves. Humility is a key to revival. We need to repent, that is, turn from our wicked ways. And as we do that, pray and seek God with new fervor. It's an inner disposition of the person that changes, and it shows itself an outside exercise of the way they spend their time, their effort, and their energy. It's not just reformation, it's revival, it's new life. 
Our passage of Scripture today, as we come back to our key passage of Scripture, and we talk about how it fits with revival, and I have to confess to you, when I initially put this passage of Scripture on this day, I didn't even think about the fact that it is about rejoicing and thanksgiving. A few weeks ago, as I was looking back at it, I went, wow, look at how God did that. He's got a rejoicing Scripture, uh, a thanksgiving Scripture on the Sunday that we're going to share a Thanksgiving meal together before the Thanksgiving holiday. So go, God. That's pretty cool. But three keys to rejoicing in God is what we find today. Three keys to rejoicing in God. The first one is that His Word satisfies us. His Word satisfies us. God's Word satisfies us. Look in verse 1 there. So they, all the people that had rebuilt the walls, and now they had physical protection, come together for a spiritual meeting. Because even though they had worked together and uh, as unified to build those walls, there was still an important step to be done. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. And notice there in verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate. It says also that they had built him a platform to stand on. So they constructed a special platform, not unlike I have a platform that we sing from or I preach from or those sort of things. And he stood on that and literally it says he read in it. And it must have been a large scroll scroll because he read for six hours. All right. I ask you guys to stand when we read. And when I read like, you know, 18, 19 verses like I did just there, y'all are getting a little antsy, aren't you? You're like, man, when do we get to sit down around here? When's he going to get done with this passage of Scripture? But he read for six hours. I kind of want to go, was it a, a cloudy day or were they out there baking in the sun? I mean, it was the springtime there and so it might have been a pleasant day. Uh, you know, did they put on sunscreen or they just had those, you know, Jesus kind of robe things? And I've got all these questions about standing out in the sun for six hours and hearing somebody read scripture. But it was an amazing act of God. Now, note verse five. Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he stood and opened it, the people all stood up. So they had been seated. But then when he stands on the platform to read, at daybreak, they stand up. And the indication from Scripture is that they stood up through the entire six hours. And it's not because they didn't have anywhere to sit. They were already sitting. And they stood up. You ever thought about me asking you to stand up when I read our key text most Sundays? Why we do that? We do it because it's in the Bible. The Bible doesn't command us, you must stand up when the pastor reads Scripture. That's not in there like that. But there's a pattern in the Bible that because of the devotion of our hearts, and like we want to show respect, and many of you have been taught that when a lady walks into the room, you stand up. When anybody walks into the room, you stand up. You offer them your hand. You greet them. It's a a sign of respect or a show of respect. And in the same way, when we read God's Word, you don't have to stand up every time you read it. But when we gather together and worship and we want to focus on God's Word, I ask you to stand up so that you've got your Bible in your hand and your eyes on your Bible and your ears on me reading and your heart tuned to the Holy Spirit as we focus on what God would say to us, just like they did here. In Nehemiah 
8.5. But look at the response. Verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So presumptively, this is towards the end or at the end of the six hours. Then notice... Somewhere in the midst, the Levites, all the guys whose names I didn't read, heaven for, uh, forgive me, they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Now, uh, some commentators have said it was because the people didn't speak Hebrew that Ezra was reading out of. They'd been gone so long, and that might have been it. It may have just been that they were translating into a language they could understand, Aramaic. But more so, the way that the Scripture indicates is they explained it to them. What happened here is Ezra may have read a portion of the law, And then the Levites may have gone out into the crowd and gathered smaller groups around them and explained to them. The Levites were doing, Scripture and commentators believe, what I do, preaching. They were saying, here's what this means. Here's how we understand this and here's why. Isn't that amazing? That pattern that built in that someone read the law and then they... Uh, went and discussed it together. And someone taught them, not unlike the way we do Sunday school today. So here they are. The Levites all went. Verse 8, they read from it, the book of the law, making it clear and giving uh, the meaning so that the people could understand what was being. This word satisfies us. God's word satisfies us. It gives us something that nothing else can give us. When we stick to Scripture and we seek a clear understanding of it, God's going to bless us. The problem is when we wander from it and when we don't concentrate on God's Word, either as a church or a denomination or as an individual, or when we read back into God's Word what we think we want it to say, eisegesis, Rather than looking at it and saying, what does it say there that applies to us today? Exegesis. But when we engage God's word, it does something in our lives. That's your first question there. How often do I engage the Bible? Now, those of you that have been here before know the reason I use the word engage. Because the studies show us whether you read it or you hear it, when you engage Scripture, it has the same effect on you. And studies show that reading or engaging Scripture through hearing is more powerful in your life than any other spiritual discipline you can have. That's why you hear me again and again and again and again and again tell you, read your Bible, listen to your Bible. All the time I'm telling people, do you have the Bible app on your phone? Do you do a reading plan? You know you can listen to it too. And people are like, yes, pastor, you told us that already. It makes a difference, an amazing difference in your life. And you've got to engage God's Word at least four times a week, at least 10 minutes a time will change your life. So the second question follows the first, and that is, who else do I discuss the Bible with? God, by His Holy Spirit, gives you the ability to understand Scripture. And if you'll take the time to study more deeply yourself, you're like, what does that mean? Look at the footnotes, look at other places that's used, or talk to somebody who maybe knows more than you, or just go to Google. You've got to be careful of your sources sometime when you Google it. You discuss the Bible and you learn more. Not just your Sunday school group, not just your Bible study group, which I trust that you have those, but your family, your friends, random people, folks you're sharing the gospel with, folks you're inviting to church. I wouldn't necessarily 
endorse discussing the Bible on Facebook because it's not maybe the best venue, you know, back and forth that way. But if you share Scripture, that's a good thing, always a good thing to share Scripture. But you may not have the most fruitful discussion there. You might want to invite somebody into a conversation. But when we engage God's Word and when we discuss God's Word, it satisfies us in a way like nothing else can do. So let's move on to your second point. Your second point is that His joy strengthens us. His joy strengthens us. Now, um, some of you know uh, about my name. My name is Aaron. And um, somebody once said, well, yeah. Uh, How's it go that uh, Aaron has, uh, but that's not his, he goes by his middle name. And somebody's like, well, is his name Aaron Aaron? Uh, No, 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 it's Paul Aaron. I just messed that story up, but I got a better one. Years ago, when I was in Africa, I, I was uh, getting ready to come home, and they invited me to preach at a youth rally. And on the last day of the youth rally, I'm going up to preach. I'm all ready. I've got my shoes tied up tight. Do you notice I do that before I go up to preach? I tie my shoes tight and pull up my socks and stuff like that, and I'm ready. And the leader of the youth rally, uh, a man that's a few years my senior and a good friend, comes and runs and grabs the microphone before I can get there. And he says, whoa, whoa, Brother Eren. He says, I have to tell something to the people. And he's speaking in English so I can understand him because I don't speak the African languages as good as they do. And he begins to tell stories about me. And he says, amidst those things, you've ate with us and you've slept with us. And I went, well, not that kind of slept with. But literally, when I would go to these youth rallies, there's nowhere else to sleep but in a bed with a bunch of other brothers in Christ, right? So there'd be like four of us in a king-sized bed with blanket covering all of us. And if you want to stay warm at night, that's what you're doing because the floor is cold because it's concrete. He says, you were one of us in these two years while you were here, so we want to give you a name before you go back to America. He says, we're going to give you the name Tabo. And I knew what the name Tabo meant. It means joy. And I started crying, of course, because I'm emotional that way. I'm going to try not to cry right now. He says, you were one of us, and you brought us joy. There's something about a person or a time, an experience, God's word, when it touches our hearts because it's honest It's genuine. It's real. It's what we need. And when we're transparent enough and humble enough to receive it, that it can bring us joy. And look at what happens here as God's people listen to God's word for like the first time in a long time in a way that they haven't listened to in forever. They're back in the city in the land that God gave them, in the city that was a capital and was symbolic to them of more than anything we can understand of God's presence among them in Jerusalem. In verse 9, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. You might be going, Why were they mourning or weeping? Look at the next thing. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. It had been so long... And since they'd engaged God's word or heard it, or they hadn't heard it in that way, that when they came together to worship, the word of God had such an effect on them, they were weeping. 
Now, friends, you need to keep in mind, weeping is not a sign of true repentance. Weeping may accompany true repentance, but weeping may also be a sign of embarrassment or guilt or shame. What shows true repentance is genuine grief over sin and a changed lifestyle that results from that true repentance. So that's what we want to see. We want to see change. Repentance is the hallmark of revival. And change is the hallmark of repentance. We want to see what change takes place in life. Look at what goes on there. Verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for our, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That one's written on all sorts of stuff at Hobby Lobby and the Christian bookstores and stuff like that, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And frankly, it's a good phrase, but how much more powerful is it when you take it in the context that it's in? These people had been separated from their land, been separated from one another, been separated from honest worship of God for all these years, decades. These folks maybe had never worshipped there before because they were born in a foreign land. And here they come back and God's men lead them and God's men explain to them. And then revival comes on them and they're weeping and mourning. And we're going to see the change next that demonstrates their repentance. They're being instructed in how to demonstrate that now. Go and share. Stop uh, weeping because this is a time of joy. And so look at it. It says in verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people. These people were weeping and mourning. Be still for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and celebrate great joy. Because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. Do you see the key? The key is that because they understood God's word, that's why they had joy. You've got a couple questions there. The first one asks, how does God's word affect me? How does it affect me? You're probably going, "Uh, Pastor, I don't remember the last time I wept and mourned when I read Scripture. Maybe you do. Maybe you should. Maybe you're not the type that weeps and mourns. That's okay. But does it touch you? Does it bring you to joy, to obedience, to sharing with others? Are you moved to change your behavior because of what Scripture tells you? That's repentance. That's revival. The second question there says, where does my joy come from? It's easy to have joy when things are going our way. But when our things are not going our way, our joy crashes and becomes sadness and anger and fear and depression and anxiety. Because our joy is based on circumstances. That's not joy, friends. True joy is a proper relationship with God that understands His love for us and His sovereignty. And that He's going to provide for us any and everything we need. And real repentance leads to real joy. And you've got an equation there. In the second point, and that's God's word plus genuine repentance equals real joy. God's word plus genuine repentance equals real joy. If you want to find the joy that only God can give, then you need to be engaging scripture daily. Read it. Listen to it. 
And then you need to be responding to Scripture daily. Obey it. Humble yourself. Confess. And when you have God's Word and you have genuine repentance, you have real joy. You see, where does God's Word come from? You don't write it. You just receive it. But genuine repentance is your response to God's Word. And what gift does God give you as you respond? Joy. Real joy is a hallmark of genuine repentance. You see how these things are related? That change, repentance, revival, joy. Pretty amazing when you consider all these things. The clear teaching of the Bible whets our appetite for more that is to come. We see that in these next verses, your third major point on your outline. That God's faithfulness unites us. God's faithfulness unites us. Look at verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. Now, do you notice the difference there? The first day of the month when they came together, it was everybody who was able to go. It said that in two different ways in our first eight verses there. But here it says that the heads of the families and the priests and the Levites gathered. So this was more the leaders of the people. Moms and kids got to stay home on the second day of the month. But the leaders of the people said, you know, uh, we've got to let our families get back to work. But what we heard yesterday was so important. We've got to come back and we've got to hear more. We've had uh, uh, been separated from God's word and been separated from genuine worship for so long. We've got to come back to worship. So verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded Moses that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seven months. Now, we listen to this and we go, this is kind of silliness, man. What was this about? This is called the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was to uh, commemorate God's deliverance of them from Egypt. They've just been delivered from Babylon. See the similarity here? And God told them what you're supposed to do is to build these little arbors. You know, get this kind of branch and that kind of branch and live under these little tents to remind yourself, even though you have a perfectly good house right here, to remind yourself of what I did for you then. And so they say, dude, we got to obey God's word. Remember, I told you that there would be change as a sign of repentance. Here's the change. So they all go out from Jerusalem into all the surrounding areas and they're cutting down all the right kind of bushes and they're coming back and building them on their rooftops. They had flat rooftops. They're building them in their courtyards. They're building them wherever they can, these little booths, so they can worship the Feast of Tabernacle. And I'm sure they did everything else that God commanded there because that was their heart at that time. They found written in the law how they're supposed to do it, verse 14, and that they should proclaim the word and spread it throughout the land and go out into the hill country and do this. So they did it, verse 16. They went out and the people, they built the booths, as I said. And the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. Listen to verse 17, second half. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. A thousand years! A thousand years since they had done that. They had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, but it had become more of a, hey, God, thanks for giving us a good harvest thing. Not a look at what God did to deliver us spiritually and change us and give us a future and a hope. That God's faithfulness united them in serving Him. And look at the last phrase of verse 17. And their joy was very great. When they repented, there was change 
And with God's word and repentance was great joy. And his faithfulness united them to do something they hadn't done in generations. Then worship that way more than they had a thousand years previous. It had to be an amazing sight. Your first question there under the third point asks, how does my repentance show? How does my repentance show? Their repentance showed by changed behavior. When they heard God's word, they obeyed God's word. They said, man, we've got to change. We can't do what we've always done. And we're going to proclaim this uh, feast throughout all the land because it's what we're supposed to do. Look at verse 18. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law. They celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. They worshiped and celebrated this feast for seven full days, just like the Bible said. That's how the repentance showed. Your next question, what commands do I need to obey? If God told them, here's what you're supposed to do, and they did it, how are we, how are you, how am I supposed to follow their example right now today? What's God told me that I need to obey? Here's the amazing thing about God's word, friends. Even though this in Nehemiah was written almost 3,000 years ago, it's applicable to us today because it tells us, here's an example to follow. What are you going to do about it, church? You've got a final point on your outline. That's that seeking God with others is central to revival. You can have personal spiritual revival. You can surrender to God anew, confess to God anew, and you can be filled with joy anew. All on your own, and you should be. But there's something that happens when a body of believers takes God's word to heart and decides to obey and does something together. And that is why we gather together, we worship together, we study together, we sing together, we read God's word together, we pray together, we enjoy meals together, we serve together. Christianity is not a solo pursuit. God intends us to worship Him Together, as a team, as a family, as a fellowship, as a church. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You did that together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you what you teach us through your word. And though it's thousands of years old, it's still applicable today. And the example we have herein about repentance and revival, and about joy that results from obeying your word. So God, it's my prayer that if there's anybody here who needs to commit their life in a new way to you, that they do it. If they've never trusted Christ Jesus as their Savior, that they'd make that decision today. If they have trusted Christ, but they've been doing things their own way and living a sinful lifestyle, And they've got something that has separated them from you or something that you've called them to obey. And they've said no. Would they surrender and say yes today? And God, would you make our joy complete as we surrender? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.